Welcome to Tech Talks with Microwave Product Digest, created to help with insights, suggestions, and hints that will help you with design and engineering. I'm Rachel Morrissey, the opening host of Tech Talks with Microwave Product Digest. For our first episode, we spoke with John Dunn of AWR at the latest International Microwave Symposium, or IMS. We wanted to talk to John about his tips on creating 3D electromagnetic simulations. We had a lot of fun discussing what to do, what to avoid, and quick ways to double check issues without starting all over. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. So John and I were just uh, talking about the article that he has written on five tips for 3D electromagnetic simulation. And so we're gonna start a little bit with the basics and then we're gonna move forward. Um, Sounds good. First, yeah. tell us, okay, what kind of simulations are there? There, you, you've done five tips for 3D electromagnetic right. simulations. Right, so, so. Yeah, thanks Rachel. So what we've got going on is that our customers uh, have need for electromagnetic simulation. And the reason they do is they're circuit designers. And so think radios, think circuit boards, things like this, mm -hmm. radar. Mm -hmm. And so as part of that, when you're designing these circuits, you often get into situations where you need an EM simulation uh, because you don't have a model, like an antenna. We mm -hmm. don't know what it does, so we have to EM simulate it. Uh, you could have a model that you don't trust. Okay. Right? We get those. Why would you have a model that you don't trust? Well, because it's not that we don't make good models. We hope we do. <laughs> but a model is a model, and uh, maybe it's too high a frequency. Uh, maybe uh -huh. you're stressing the model. The line is too wide, or maybe there's a situation where you're kind of going, eh, I'm not sure I trust this model in a situation. Maybe it's not exactly. You're kind of bending the model a little. Okay. The third, there's third case, which is you trust the model. So think of your filter. But then when you build the board, there's other shapes nearby. Oh. And they affect it. Are they too close? Okay. They're not in the model. So we would have to EM it to see if there's a problem. So there's a lot of reasons that uh, our designers uh, who use our software uh, need EM. Uh -huh. And what EM simulation does is it actually takes, uh, talk a little physics here, it okay. actually takes Maxwell's equations. Okay. Now, if you're, I don't think you're a physicist, are I'm you? I'm not, but okay. I, have, I have read about Maxwell's equations. Okay, well, Mr. Maxwell uh, made these equations up, uh, 1864, and they are the fundamental equations of the universe. Okay. So they are right. So what are the, what are the equations? Well, what, what they are is they involve electric and magnetic fields, and what they do is they explain how these fields are created and interact and what they are. So what we now do in uh, EM simulators is we take those equations and we numerically solve them. Okay. So that if you do it correctly, uh, and there's a big if, the correctly, but if you do it correctly, it has to be right. You are not making assumptions. Right. Stuff. Now the reality is you always are, and that's where we, in the tips, we'll get into this. So the idea is to make the right assumptions and have the simulator work correctly. Right. So you were giving out five tips yes. on a way to create these simulations. Uh, and have them these work These EM simulations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you start with simplifying the geometry. Yes. Now, why do you simplify the geometry? How And how do you go about simplifying the geometry? Yeah, that's, you... yeah, that's a good question. Um, because, you know, I just said that, you know, Maxwell's equations supposedly it has to be correct. The trouble is there's no computer in the world big enough to run every little detail. 
as part of this, um, I would uh, forgot to mention, we actually have two simulators. So right. for Maxwell's equations, we have a planar simulator called Axiom. Axiom solves for the, uh, you, you've seen a filter, a planar filter. It actually solves for the currents on the metal. It works very well for boards and chips, things that are layers. I'm not, that's not what I'm going to talk about today. No, the other, our other simulator is a 3D simulator analyst. Right. And what it does is it literally takes Maxwell's equations and it meshes up the universe, if you will, into these little pyramids. I'm sure you've seen pictures of finite element. And each little pyramid is this very simple approximation of the electric field. Okay. And this gets us to geometry simplification. So the, so, yeah. So just to back up a little bit, there's, there's two kinds of simulations. There's mm -hmm. the planar. Yeah. And then there's Axiom. the 3D. Analyst, yeah. So analyst is the 3D simulator. That's right. And that's, that's what we're talking about today. And, and so in the, in the 3D simulator, mm -hmm. it's basically taking what would, taking those equations and putting them into what like uh, occupy real life space. Yeah, yeah. Right. And it's numerically solving them. Right. So it's doing a, a, a numerical solution by dividing space up into little pyramids. And then we're putting the electric fields in each one of those through Maxwell's equation. Okay, so that's... And the, and the answer we get out then is the electric field. Well, and then that's why you would want to simplify the geometry. Exactly, because we have too many pyramids. Right. And we get a problem that is absurd. You would need, uh, I don't know, all the computers in Utah, Amazon, dark cloud space, and run it for years. So, it, so the art, <laughs> the art is to simplify it correctly. Right, so how, what's the approach? How do you begin to do that? Okay, so what we do, well, first of all, in any engineering exercise, goes without saying, there's no substitute for experiments. You know, if you're a person who has brought in with geometries, often these geometries were generated in another tool, like a mechanical drawing tool, right? And they're handing over, hey, John, here's our entire package module. You know, and this thing has millions of little details from the company logo to when they mill the thing, it's got little things. They don't matter electromagnetically. Okay. How do I know what to get rid of? First of all, experience, I've done it a lot, but what I'm looking for, uh, if we think, for example, of a surface, little, little jags in the surface, instead of a sharp corner, maybe it's a rounded corner. It's not gonna matter electromagnetically. So we, we try to simplify the shapes Okay. where we can't. So corners, little jags in the metal, uh, especially small little, you know, So when shapes. you say simplify, mm -hmm. are you really just saying eliminate a lot of the detail that would not necessarily, that wouldn't affect an electromagnetic field? Or are you saying that you uh, prefer a different shape? That That's a good question. Uh, both, both. So, okay. so first of all, we're always trying to get rid of, of little details in the geometry that don't matter. Think of little bumps, you know, a little. Right. Another example, if we had a, uh, a board and for some reason they had a uh, hole in that board that didn't affect anything, we would get rid of it because it's a me for mechanical purposes. It's going to take a lot of pyramids, tetrahedra, and it's a waste of time. Okay. The other point you bring up, though, it's more than that. There might be shapes. Uh, let me give you an example of this. We might have a metal line that mm -hmm. we're trying to simulate on a board. And because of the way they built the line, we, they may have like 
three or four different layers right on top of each other. Right. And the and if you look from the side, first, second, and third, fourth layer, they all may be a little different width. Uh -huh. That thing has to mesh around all of that. So we may just, in shape simplification, go, you know what, just make it one shape. Right. The fun thing is, uh, a lot of times when you bring these things in, the geometries, uh, we just have rules and the software will automatically simplify. It's not like you're going in and doing each individual shape. So for example, we'll say, hey, all of those lines, please just you know, make them the same width. And we can do that automatically. So have you ever run into an issue where it didn't simplify the geometry and it just uh, sure. messed up sure. the simulation? Well, and exactly. If you don't simplify it enough, I mean, many times we just have simulations that are too large. Right. I mean, recently I was working on a silicon chip filter and we threw it into Analyst, the 3D simulator, and the filter was so big, the chip was so complicated, I think the first, these things solve iteratively, they get better and better meshing. Even the initial mesh was, you know, was like 128 gigabytes of RAM, which if you know this field is absurd. I mean, that's <laughs> just, you're, you know, it, it's just, it wasn't possible to do it. We didn't simplify it enough. Okay. It's always fun. Not to simplify, because it's easy. You just bring it in and go hit the button. You can be a monkey and do it. The trouble is it didn't work. So now you got to go in, okay, what really matters here? Let's take this out, take this out. I've had situations, many situations where simplified too much. Huh? So those lines, and you had a, the other lines, and you had the next ones close by, that little change in width mattered in a spiral. And we got something called the Q, which is a figure numeric for a spiral. We got it wrong, Ooh. way off, because the current depended so critically on the little thing. So I simplified too much. So, it, you, you know, it, it's an art form. You can do yeah. that. It can go both ways. And how do you know? Uh, you've done it a lot. Of okay. course, never hurts to compare to experimental data. We love experimental data. Um, but, yeah, it's the more you do it, the... The easier the, that becomes. Hopefully the better you get at it, yes. So the trick is that you work with somebody who knows what they're doing the first few times at least. That's called being a, yeah. And start uh, getting the hang That's of called it. being a junior engineer talking to a good senior engineer. <laughs> learning the tricks of the trades like anything else. The more you do it and you make your mistakes, hopefully before you build it because uh, that gets expensive. But yes, you basically learn through experience right. and certain principles. You know, a shape less than the size shouldn't matter right? based on the frequency you're at. I mean, there, there are rules of thumb. Yeah, there's no substitute for experience. And hardly anything. That's right, including electromagnetic simulation. <laughs> <laughs> so your second tip was yeah. about um, making sure that S parameters match physical space. So walk me through that. What is that uh, talking about in general? And then yeah, walk me yeah. through how you would make sure of that? Yeah, that's a great question. So analysts, the electromagnetic simulator, when it's all done, what does it give you? It solves for the fields, but circuit designers don't design with fields. They design with numbers, if you will. Uh, and in particular, it's called S parameters. Mm -hmm. And what an S parameter does is we have this geometry. Imagine our filter has ports. They're going to attach to it, you know, of the instrument. And in the electromagnetic simulator, and later we'll talk more about ports, I think. Yeah. But we have these ports, and out of this, so let's say we have two ports. You get a two-port S-parameter file. 
Mm -hmm. And that then is put into the rest of the circuit simulator to design the circuit. The S-parameter file tells you when you put uh, energy or voltage or current into one port, how much is reflected mm -hmm. and how much comes out. Okay. And the performance of that circuit. So the S-parameter file is what they're after when they're really trying to throw it in a circuit design. Okay. okay. All the field stuff is great. You need it, but what you're really trying to end up with is this S-parameter file. Okay, so we have an S-parameter file. The trick is, how do we know if it's any good? Right. Now, you know, one thing I'm going to say, there's no substitute for experience. That's true, but there are a few things that you can try uh, that are very easy to do uh, for any S-parameter file, and they can just give you a sanity check, like, am I even on the right planet here? Right. So the first one is called passivity. And so what passivity says is if we have a structure like a filter, and uh, remember Maxwell's equations are supposed to be you know, the real world, if you will, the real physics, that structure cannot create energy. Uh, otherwise, it would be great. We could have perpetual motion. The only way you can create energy in a structure like that would be to have an energy source like a transistor, an amplifier, which we are not dealing with here. These are what we call passive structures, no energy. Right. So what this test does, it's a, it's a mathematical test. And you take the S-parameter file, and in a couple seconds, it will tell you if it's passive or not. If the S-parameter file is not passive, it's creating energy, you go, that cannot be, right? Something is fundamentally wrong with this S-parameter file. Because that can't exist. That cannot exist. There's no way that my filter is making energy. So if it did, you are a genius. And I am a genius, yes, and I would not an be talking to you. I would not know, yes. No, you would uh, be a zillionaire. I would be a zillionaire. You yeah. would never see me. Yeah. So <laughs> passivity is a great check. Now, what if it isn't passive? You know, you can throw your hands up in despair and say, we're doomed. It didn't right. work. Throw it away. That can be the case. The question is, how non passive it is it? What situations are you going to be using it in? You may throw it into a circuit with other resistance. It'll be okay. And also, when you look at where it's not passive, why is it not passive? Right. So it could be everything from the ports, which we'll get to isn't calibrated correctly. It could be you don't have enough meshes. It hasn't converged. Uh, it could be uh, we have something called uh, when you, you, of course, simulate over a number of frequencies, we have ways of doing that faster, oh, okay. approximate fast sweeping techniques. They could have messed up. So what there's then this process of going through where you find out why it's not passive. Uh, there is one similar test I don't want to get into uh, much now. It still relates to energy. Uh -huh. The passivity test I just mentioned, again, we think of our, uh, use a fancy word here, DUT, D-U-T, device under test. Okay. So if we have our device under test, the passivity test doesn't care what you put in which port. It's just a property of the object. If you find out it's not passive, we have another test where we can put power into one port, see if it's okay, then try the other port, see if it's okay. In other words, we can now start digging in a little bit. And figuring out you know, where it was, Yeah, it was like port, port four, something's wrong with that area. Right. So we can do that test too. It's, it's called a energy conservation test. In our software, it's literally called Sum Power. It's kind of a dumb name, but 
that's what it is. Uh, so sun we have that. S-U-M-P-W-R. Yeah. Yeah. Some power. I know. I didn't make it up. You're like, I know, but I'm not responsible for that. So, so we have these tests. The point being, we can check, see if energy is conserved. Now, just to be a pessimist or a realist. Yeah. Well, a pessimist is a realist who's been around long enough, right? That's what pessimist. So <laughs> I thought that was a cynic. <laughs> oh, yes, maybe so. Well, anyway, um, just because it's passive right. doesn't mean it's right. Right. And it also doesn't mean it's accurate. But if it's passive, it's possible. If it's passive, we're feeling better. Right. And you can do that test in about 30 seconds. So, so, so it's an easy check. It's an easy check. Uh, if it is good, don't think you're out of the woods, but you're feeling better. Well, at least you're not in the woods. You're, you're exactly. <laughs> you're still, yeah, you're still on the road anyway. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so on your third tip. Yeah. You're talking about wave ports and modes. Yes, and, yes, yeah. um, So first of all, uh, in analysts, you say that there are different kinds of ports mm -hmm. and that the wave port isn't the default. Yeah. So can you talk to us about that a little bit yeah, and why sure. you're using a wave port? Yeah, sure. So uh, I already mentioned, you know, we're meshing up space to solve this thing. And again, you know, we have our device here, the DUT, device the under DUT. test. And we have to excite it. We have to, it, I, obviously, if we don't put any power or voltage or anything into it, I know the answer. It's zero. Nothing's happening. Right. How do you excite it? Well, typically, if you think of a circuit, imagine a circuit board, you have lines coming up to it that we're sending signals down, et cetera. Sure. Go in there, we solve. To excite those lines, we have ports. And so what is a port? Um, the easiest physical analogy would be uh, you have on your phone, uh, you plug in, uh, for example, a USB cable. Right. And you plug that thing in and you hear things on it. You can charge things up. That is a port. So right. that would be a port. So it's very similar in microwaves and radio frequency RF circuitry. And you'll see all the time cables, right? And we have a cable like coax cable and we screw it on and that's a port. Well, in simulators, we have it too. And so what we do is we uh, have to create that port. Now, there are two ways to do it. Uh, the one way, the default way in Analyst, would we, we make what's called, in our funny name, a lumped port. A lumped port. <laughs> it's a lump port, yeah. Got it. Or it can be called an internal port, a circuit port. <laughs> but anyway, what a lump port is, it's a circuit element, if you will, uh, which basically is like a little voltage source. Okay. And that's really all it is, okay? Mm -hmm. So think of like, you know, the anal physical analogy would be like you're plugging in a little, you know, red wire that's your voltage source. The analogy in microwaves and RF would be that type of port, because if again, if you think of the red wire and the black wire, think of two probe tips, uh -huh. okay, black and red. Yeah. That's that kind of port. We're just kind of plunking those two guys down there, putting a voltage across them, and we excite the circuit. All right? Okay. okay. The other kind of port that you were referring to, the wave port, right. think now of that coax cable coming up to, and you're going to have connectors, of course. That coax cable, what we can do is we can put ports there where the coaxes would attach, and we make a wave port. Now, a wave port is, you imagine that coax, and I'm sure you've seen, you know, coax has an inner conductor and an outer. Well, when, there's actually a wave going down that cable. At okay. RF frequencies. 
and there's electric field voltage between the inner and the outer part of the cable. And this wave comes down, and that way that electric field is distributed is called a mode. Okay. M-O-D-E, mode. And if you're an electrical engineer, especially an RF engineer, this gets, it's an important concept. And so you, they send a mode down the cable, and we imitate that in analysts. So an analyst, the wave port, actually would have that coaxial mode it solves for. And then power comes in on that mode, comes into our DUT. It's reflected. We know the instant the reflected, we get the S parameters. Now, why make a wave port? It's more accurate than the probe tips. Sure. Why ever use the probe tips? Because the wave port has to be at the edge of the box. Okay. We have a way okay. you can kind of get it inside. but And you know, again, a physical analogy. You're in the laboratory. Here's my dud. And I have what's called a network analyzer. Beautiful, insanely expensive instrument with insanely expensive cables. Often gold. I mean, really, this, these are absurd. Like $1,000 cables. Beautiful. Yeah, right? We're not talking Radio Shack here, folks. This is like... <laughs> Big money, okay? They come in beautiful it's boxes. The good stuff. Oh, it's the good stuff. They come in beautiful boxes. They used to do walnut. They don't do it anymore. But anyway, yeah, it's uh, red velvet, you know. So you take your cable and you do this. So you have this beautiful instrument, and you're hooking these incredibly expensive cables up. And where do you hook them to? The ends of the board. You can't get them into the middle of the board. Into the middle. That's the wave port. Okay. Why do you like the probe tips? They're so easy. I just go. And I'm around anywhere. the I can put them anywhere. Flexibility, but not quite as accurate. Are right. they useless? No. People use them all the time. But when you really need that, you know, beautiful filter measurement, you have to use the waveports. Wave so that's why we have both. Okay. You've explained how analyst is treating a waveport. Yeah. And it says it solves for eigenvalues. What are eigenvalues? So eigenvalue is. Um, what you're getting into here now are some of the more advanced details of waveports. So let me kind of go through that a little bit. So I mentioned the concept of mode. Mm -hmm. So when you have a, a, a cable, like we were just talking about, this very expensive cable, there, is, there actually, on anything like that, there are, when it solves mathematically, there are an infinite number of modes. Right. And each mode will have a different distribution of electric field in the cable. Those modes cannot propagate, we call it below cutoff, because of the mathematics. They can't fit in the cable, if you will. Right. And they just attenuate quickly at a given frequency. The higher the frequency, the more the modes can propagate. So what you do is, uh, in any cable system, we're at a low enough frequency, we only get the dominant mode. Uh, maybe you've seen hollow waveguides, you know, these, these things to radars, they look like they're a hollow tube, literally. Mm -hmm. they, that has an infinite number of modes, but the frequencies they operate, there's only one. So what you're, which you want, you want to be in that one mode. Okay. Um, and so what you're getting into there with eigenvalues and stuff, that is alluding to solving for those number of modes. And what analysts will do then is it puts all the power into the first mode. Okay. Which is the one you want. So it has to do with that. So sort analyst of thing. takes care of that for you. Analyst takes great. care of all that. And that's it, what you're kind yeah, of saying. And, it, and it, I'll mention one more, a little bit of an advanced point, which is kind of interesting. In, I mentioned an infinite number of modes. Yes. Okay. 
There are situations for very select groups of engineers who worry about more than one mode. Um, and I will give you a couple examples. A circular waveguide, hollow pipe, mm -hmm. which people will use to feed a circular antenna, if that makes sense. There are actually two modes that can propagate there. You can have one with the E-field this way and this way. Okay, so they worry about it. Analyst, when we're using it within microwave office, can only handle one mode. Okay. That's because microwave office can only handle one mode. It's a circuit simulator. And circuit simulators, ultimately, they don't even know about modes, but they certainly only work with that. Remember, we, I don't know if we mentioned this quasi-TEM transfer. We haven't talked about it yet. That's what anyway, it's, it's, it's the quasi-circuit world, if you will. Right. And... What does TEM stand for? Transverse electromagnetic. And it refers to a mode. So that's and, the, okay. and it's the mode in the coax. It means that the electric and magnetic fields do, I'm going at you, Rachel, and the electric and magnetic fields are this way. Are both ways. They're not that way. They're right. not longitudinal. Right. So it refers to a mode type. Well, anyway, okay. you can get a situation where you might want to look at more than one mode. Usually it's people with like circular waveguides. Um, millimeter wave people with high frequency stuff. We have a way to look at multiple modes um, and you can actually run analyst on its own. Huh? But you don't run it within microwave office. Uh, it's a fairly new development last year or so. And the way it works is you literally would bring it up on its own and you're in its own little 3D world and you can look at multiple modes and all that kind of stuff. If With, you must. If you must, and there are people who must. There are, there are people doing waveguides and all this kind of stuff, and they need multiple modes. So you can do it, but it's uh, not going to be within microwave office because microwave office, the whole simulation environment is set up for one mode. Right. Okay? So, okay. Yeah. So your fourth tip yeah. is trace the return paths. Yes. So yes. why are we tracing the return path? Well, that's that, a, that is a great that Yeah, I'm glad you brought that one up. So, and this, uh, I can give you some anecdotes on this one, too. So uh, disasters are always the best anecdotes. Disasters right? are always good anecdotes. Uh, okay, so what that means is, and this is basically, there's a thing called signal integrity right. engineering. Signal integrity engineering looks at, it's based in electromagnetics. And what the people do is they'll look at your board and stuff. Uh, signal integrity kinds of problems would be this line is coupling to this line too much. Uh, we have too much loss on the line, so the signal attenuates as we go down it. These are signal integrity types of questions, okay? Well, when you have something like a board, and remember our ports, our wave ports that we talked about before in the modes, if we, uh, and imagine a coax, okay? Mm -hmm. So we have our coax here on the left and we send power down the thing. The outer part of the coax is its current return path. So current on a coax, it goes down the center conductor and it comes back on the outer. Actually the inside of the outer. That's why when you grab the coax, you don't get shocked because it's the it's inside of the conductor. You. Yeah, it's protecting you. That and it's, they rubberize it, but that's beside the point. Okay, so the current comes here and comes back here. Now that you attach up to the circuit with the port. Right. And you come in and all this stuff goes, you know, your current goes into the circuit and does its thing, it's got to come back. If you set up the port and you don't do it correctly, you can have the outer return path, its ground, its ground return, 
not connected to the ground return of the circuit. So you send this mode down, PEM, everything's looking good, and instead of going into the circuit, it all reflects because it's an open circuit. Right. Why would you make that mistake? Because you thought you had it connected to the ground inside the... The, uh, the circuit. Yeah, inside the board, mm -hmm. but you didn't. Mm -hmm. And why did you make that mistake? Because you're drawing 3D shapes and they can be really close together, but not quite touching. Oh, okay. Okay, now how do you check that? Uh, the one way you'll find out for sure is to run the simulation. Uh, five hours later you go, oops, it all reflected. What's wrong? Uh, the easier way is we do have a, a simple way uh, that it will uh, show you if things are connected by color. And so if things are the same net, DC net, connect, connected, they'll be the same color. So, and so one co you could see a green and all of a sudden you go, wait a minute, that should be green and it's not green. Right. It can be subtle to find it. Now I mentioned a disaster, I'll give you one. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say, what is I know, a, you an hear. example of the return paths being <laughs> all of the power yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing yeah, going to the board. Yeah. So this happens, you know, and people fix it and are aware of it, but it can be subtle. And here's what happened in this case. I was actually one of our, uh, one of my colleagues at the company, he was supporting a case, and he was getting the S parameter results. Uh, this, and this was a kind of a board module sort of thing. And he was getting these results that he just couldn't understand. And he's getting, you know, I'm getting, way too much power coming back. But what was tricky was it wasn't all the power. Mm. Now, usually if you have the thing just reflect, you would expect you, you in the S parameters, it would just show everything comes back. Right. But only some of it came back. But so more came back, some always comes back. There's always reflection. Sure. But more, a lot more was coming back than should have, but it wasn't all of it. So he goes, so it must be connected. What's going on? Well, it turned out it wasn't connected, and this is a, was a subtle one, and I had to stare at it for a number of hours. And then I realized what happened is he did not have it connected. But the reason it all wasn't coming back, when you mesh <clears throat> with our tetrahedra, you can't mesh the whole universe. So there's always a boundary on these simulations, right? Okay. Right? So sure. think of a box. Yeah. And that box, on the edge of the box, we have things we call boundary conditions. We're, we put a boundary condition, it's called an impedance boundary condition, it's kind of a technical term. We put a boundary condition that makes it look like there's no box boundary. It absorbs, okay. any energy that hits it, it's absorbed. So it's like, it, it's like in no box there, but it's an approximation. Right. Like all things. And guess what? The, it was sucking up some of the energy. It, it is. And the way they do it, uh, the, the physical analogy, they, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of an anechoic chamber. You ever seen one of these things with like the big spiky cones on the sides? They yeah. have the same for acoustic. I have seen that. Uh, what they are is they're carbon. They're lossy material. Carbon heats. Put carbon in a microwave oven and you know, right, heats right. up. So they do that deliberately. So any wave that hits it gets absorbed. It doesn't come back. So you don't see the walls of the chamber. It makes it invisible. Now the trick is to do it well. And it turns out the boundary condition we use kind of does it well, but kind of not. And in matter of fact, when you have the wave, here's your boundary, 
If it hits straight on, it does it really well. Well, here was this port, another port. The boundary was absorbing, so some of the energy was going along the boundary, think of the current, and, being and getting over to here, so mm -hmm. it didn't all reflect. Ah, uh, okay. And it took, uh, the customer never did figure it out. The other engineer, I finally told him what was going on. It took about two days and we got it solved. But I thought that was kind of an interesting one because it wasn't like everything reflected and you're like, oh, well, you, you know, you didn't hook it up right. It yeah. was much more subtle than that. Well, what is interesting, about, especially about that, is that you, you've got the simulation and you think something must be connected and what's actually it was connected not. What's actually connected, if if anything, is this boundary. This boundary was acting was, as a yeah. It's acting as a kind of a pseudo connector because it's absorbing yeah. something. And, and normally you'd never if, if he if he had really connected the, the the board part correctly, he never would have noticed it. No. But what happened? It was a perfect open, and you know, it's nature finds a way, and so <laughs> it was going around this boundary to uh, try to make the connection. It mm -hmm. did, and then it got everyone completely confused. So, <laughs> that yeah. must have been a fun problem so it, to solve. It's not always completely obvious, right? You're that must have, have been a fun problem It was. To solve. Well, I kind of enjoy this stuff. But I'm like, yeah. Okay. So your last tip. So this actually relates to what you were talking about mm -hmm. just now because your tip number five is understand the boundaries. And since your last incident, you, you were talking about how the boundaries were actually yeah. fooling you a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah. So, so talk about uh, why, uh, what you should be looking for in right. boundaries. Right, and things so you, you can do, sure. You can avoid some of like the yeah, last what thing, happened. Right? a two-day yeah, exactly. waste of time. <laughs> so, so again, of course, we have these boundaries because I can't mesh all of space. Right. And so there's two issues here is... Uh, the first one, which anyone using a 3D simulator is known to worry about, how big does the box need to be? Right. And here's the device, and you know the box really shouldn't be there, but it is. So how far away should it be? And the, the facetious answer is far enough that it doesn't affect anything. So there have been these rules of thumb developed that people know. I'll give you one of them, for example. Make the height of the box 10 times the board thickness. Is okay. Example. Is that always true? Probably not. But it gives you an idea. So as you develop experience, you can kind of look at these things. Ah, you need to make the box bigger. Mm. How do you know if it's big enough? Well, you're free to make it smaller and try it out. Uh, often the, per the beginning uh, person using this stuff, the beginner, they make the box huge. And after five days, it's still running. They give up. So the problem with making the box too big. Too many tests. Is it just takes too long. Yeah. Yeah, it takes the way too The problem with making the box too small is it you can't inter It tell interferes everything. with the problem, and you'd get the wrong answer. So the rule of thumb became these 10 boards, right? Uh, ten, ten, the, yeah, that would ten. be an example of a rule of thumb. Yeah. So where do these rules of thumb come from? No one knows. No one knows. They're just Ancient engineering, engineering myths passed uh, down. It, it, it's true. It actually is true. They... The, uh, these tools have been used in various forms now in the industry for going on 30, uh, 30 years or more. And uh, they started using them, and at you know, a company they went, hey, you know, usually 10's about right. I have rules of thumb I made up. So, okay, just, so what would be your rule of thumb? You're setting these simulations up all of the time. 
you're working with them. Yeah. And what would be your for the size of the box? Boundaries? Well, I would yeah. use I yeah I would look at the you know depends how accurate you want it. But for example, for the height of the box, I would look at the board thickness to the bottom ground. Plus, you know, of course, the shapes themselves might have heights. You can imagine a transistor package. And I would go, yes, I would go somewhere between five and eight to 10 heights. The sides of the box, I'd look where the circuit is and the substrate to the ground. And I would make sure we were at least five or six substrates away. It all depends. Now, if the structure is really big this way, I'd make it five to six structures away. Right. But yeah, that'd be my rule of thumb. That would be your typical rule yeah. on boundaries. Just looking at it. Now, the second, you mentioned the boundary issue. See, the other problem with boundaries, you got to pick the right boundary. Right. You got the size of the box, but we need the right so boundary. So how would you do, do that? that? So we have about six or seven choices. Um, so the first one that's kind of obvious, if you happen to have a real box, which you might, how you know, filter housed in a package, made of metal, you obviously would make the boundaries metal. That's pretty mm -hmm. obvious because they're real. When you want to pretend the boundaries aren't there, we have something called, again, it's this absorbing boundary condition. Uh, we call it an approximate open. We also have a much fancier absorbing boundary condition called a perfectly matched layer. Now, both of them are designed to make it look like the edge of the box isn't there, but the perfectly matched layer works much better. So why wouldn't you use that all the time? Excellent question. The problem is the way it, the way it works. Remember I mentioned the chamber with those cones. Mm -hmm. So you see they're change. You know, here's your chamber, and the cone as you go along it changes. Right? Mm -hmm. It's wider. They actually dart, uh, dope the carbon more. If you go back, they'll dip it, and there's actually a profile. So the point being, they actually change it. The perfectly matched layer. We actually on the boundary take a whole lot of little layers and we layer it like an onion, mm -hmm. and each one of them is different. What the simulator then has to do is mesh all that. So the point being, you create a tremendous number of meshes, and typically the simulation will take 10 times longer. So it's a heavy price to pay. So instead of one hour, you're at 10 hours. And that's time is money. Time is money, and, and also we have, of course, the size of the problem goes up too, the amount of RAM needed. Usually, the only time you would use the perfectly matched layer is for antennas. Okay. You deliberately are radiating, you know, the patch right. antenna. We want it to radiate. We want a good approximation, and we'll bite the bullet and do it. Practically making the box a little, if you don't have a radiating structure like an antenna, practically speaking, you're probably better off making the box a little bit bigger and just using the simpler boundary condition. Watching out for like those sneak paths that that issue where it was reflecting. Right. It's called a sneak path. The current went along the boundary and you didn't know it. One quick way to check that we have another boundary. Right. Very few people use it. More should use it. It's actually a very useful boundary. I mentioned earlier you might be in a real box with metal, so we would put metal. Right. The idealization of that is called a perfect electric conductor. Now that is a metal. Think like copper, gold, or something, but it has no resistivity. There's also what's called a perfect magnetic conductor. Okay. It's like a perfect conductor, but instead of for current, it would be for magnetic current. There is no magnetic current in the real world. So it gets a little abstract. Another way to say it, it's a perfect open. 
current, remember, remember we had the, the problem with the reflection? Right. The, the mystery reflection, and we found out it was sneak current going around the boundary. With the perfect magnetic conductor, no current can flow on the boundary. So, so you don't ever have that problem. So exactly. So one way, remember this previous thing we had going on, the way I finally determined it for sure, I just replaced the approximate open, the absorbing, with the perfect magnetic conductor, and everything reflected. And everything reflected. By changing the boundary. It's it's a great way. Simply yeah. eliminated that as a possibility. Yeah, and another way to use it, we have been talking about how big the box is if it interferes. Run it with the absorbing and then rerun it with the perfect magnetic. If you see a big different answer, the box is too small. So because it shouldn't be affecting it. But the perfect magnetic isn't good for everything. No, no, it's, it's, it's more. It's, it seems like it's more useful to check on the reflection. Yes, exactly. We cannot build a perfect magnetic conductor. Yeah. I wish we could. Well, I'd be rich again. I wouldn't be talking to you, but I can't. So anyway, you'd yes. Never talk to me ever so, again. So <laughs> like, it's I'm a. My so uh, it is. Um, <laughs> it's an abstraction, mm -hmm. but it's a very useful way to check a circuit to make sure the box is big enough make sure we don't have sneak currents on the boundary. And I use it all the time. Unfortunately, most of our customers don't. Right, and then they run into an issue and you have to say, Do Yeah, and then I look really smart. So, <laughs> you look like you're worth what I, I look like I'm an expert, yeah. So it's a, great, it's a great checking tool. I think that's a good way to put it. One of the biggest pains in this stuff is the drawing of it all. So whenever you have to go in and go, I'm gonna add some shapes and I'm gonna, it's a pain. This thing, you just go, boop, and you're done, right? Because I just flipped the switch, and it's the new boundary condition, and we rerun. Might, it'll take, you have to run it, but it didn't take me any time. And yeah. I come back and see if the answer differs. And if it's, if it's, it's always a little different. These are numerical methods. But if it's wildly different, we go, ooh, we didn't have that circuit hooked up correctly. That's a, so, that's a nice check. It is, it, yeah. It saves yeah. a lot of time. So tri yeah. uh, tricks of the trade, that's what I like to do. So before I let you go, yeah. are there any other rules of thumb you'd like to, to throw out there? Is there a rule of thumb that you, you, you use all the time that besides the, the magnetic field sure, box? Sure, sure. What are a couple of other just handy, simple tricks that you can use for these simulations? Just rules of thumb for you. Once that come to mind would be, uh, so the way the 3D simulator analyst works with these tetrahedra is it, it does a number of iterations of mesh refinement. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you start with a certain number of meshes and you get an answer. And then you put in more meshes, smaller meshes, and we get an answer. Okay. But the answer doesn't change much, subject to our error criterion, convergence criteria, we're done. And you keep on going until you run out of memory or you meet your criteria. So think seven, eight, ten iterations of this thing going along. So one rule of thumb, uh, give you one example, is that criteria for converging. What should that number be? Now the default is something, it's a number 0.02. It's the number 0.02. Why do we use that number? Because everyone uses that number. You know, that's another one. Who started that number? It's in, lost in the lore. You know. I love how engineering has lore. Yeah, we do. And we always have, uh, well, I'll give you an example of that, as a matter of fact. Uh, in engineering, 
when you talk to engineers and they'll be talking about how accurate something is, et cetera. And, they, and they'll often say uh, 10%. You'll hear it all the time, 10%. Whenever you hear 10%, they made it up. <laughs> Everyone does it. It's in the lore. It's just like, oh, about, it's, it's going to be good to about 10%. I'm like, you have no idea, do you? Like, no, not really. So whenever you hear 10%. That's a good tip. Yeah. So I never, say 10, I never say 10%. So you make up something else. I say 5.842%. That sounds they go, like wow. a very nice, accurate made-up yeah. number. <laughs> yeah. But as a former professor said, uh, it was something like 82.4% of statistics are made up. So there you go. Anyway, yeah, where were we? Oh, yeah, so 0.02. Saying, we were at the convergence. 0.02. Yeah. 0.02. Well, it's sometimes good enough, but often not good enough. What, it's good enough for standard signal integrity problems. Checking the coupling between two lines, et cetera. Are things connected properly? It's a good mm -hmm. one. It is not accurate enough for high-performance filters, and I prefer 0.01. It's a good rule of thumb. Uh, I will get down, I will try to get down to 0.005, so that's half of 0.01, which is really cranked down. And uh, I only would be using that in filters with, say, 100 dB. Uh, which is the indication of how good the filter is, uh, type performance. So very high performance filters. The other place uh, where I might need to get that is if I'm looking at loss, and where people care about that is spiral inductors. There's something, right. a thing called the Q, which is the quality of the inductor. Depends critically on the resistance, and you might really have to crank it down. So a good rule of thumb there would be 0.05. 0.002, I might even go to and the ultimate 0.001, which will probably never converge. But I've never gone below that because there's no hope. So, so again, it's a good rule, you know, a rule of thumb on that. You know, what kind of circuit am I looking at? And how, how far do I want to crank down the tolerance? Yeah. Would be an example. And what, what the performance needs to be. Yeah, because, of course, it's taking longer to simulate. And maybe, sure. and maybe you don't need it. Why, right. why are you simulating for four days? when you don't need it. Don't throw your entire chip and board in there and ask, ask the boss for a terabyte of RAM. The software is not going to do everything for you. No, It's no, meant to be no. a tool to help you, but it's not supposed to do everything for no, you. No, we still need the engineer, which is why I have a job. We're not right. there yet where we can just hit the button. Are you worried about AI doing that? You know, actually, I'm excited about AI. I, I, and the reason is I think AI can do some of it. You know, all these rules of thumb and stuff, mm -hmm. it's a very simple oh, way. Absolutely. Making a choice for you. Absolutely, it based is. On, based on experience. So. Based on experience and information yeah. that it can process maybe faster than you can without that much. Well, experience. and so I'm not threatened by it. I think it's kind of exciting. So, uh, yeah. So stay tuned. It's all going to keep evolving. It is. Uh, the other one out there, the big excitement for electromagnetics is, uh, I'm sure you've heard of the cloud is out there. Everybody's heard of the, the cloud. cloud. Nobody knows the what cloud. it is. Yeah, but it's out it. there. It's in Utah. It's all in Utah. <laughs> it's all in Provo. It is. It's 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 in these. I know. It's these in these giant computers. These giant warehouses of computers in Utah. That's where it's all is. It's true. That's the cloud. Uh, what do you do with all that? You know, all that computer power. I keep saying, you know, uh, you know, the amount of RAM and limited. So wow, let's send it out to the cloud. I say, great. There's one problem: is your algorithms, 
the math behind it. You have to do it correctly. And so this is a challenge for all the companies right now. And if you do it incorrectly, I know this sounds bizarre, it'll actually run slower than on one computer. It's all these computers, how can we use them? And uh, we're looking at them, AWR, including electromagnetics, and I'm sure everybody else is too. Well, so stay tuned. I think you guys are doing great stuff. And thank you so much for thank going you. through all of this. Thank you, it's a lot of this. fun. I'm thank all right, you. talk to you later. And Bye everyone. We hope you enjoyed MPD Tech Talks. We are going to bring you more discussions that will help you with your design and engineering questions. Let us know what you think on Twitter at MPD underscore social media and look for us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts.